Welcome to the future. This year, the Emerging Writers Festival invites you to speculate with us, to consider the possibilities of the future and the consequences of today. We spoke to one of our favourite future visionaries, Timmer Ball, about the future of our cities and environments and the place storytelling plays in the construction and actualization of these realities. Timmer Ball is a mixture of things, urban researcher, writer and zine maker. She grew up in Melbourne and descends from the Baladong Noongar people on her mother's side. She has written for a range of publications such as The Lifted Brow, Mianjin, The Griffith Review and Westerly Magazine. I'm Izzy Robertsaw. I'm the Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival. And I'm Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh and I'm the Digital Producer at EWF. Now, a little later in the podcast, we're going to hear a beautiful piece that you have read for us. Uh, what was the title of that work? It was called Remnants of a Food Court and I read a section of it, I guess, exploring the pressure and potential chaos of housing and I looked at kind of artists' needs. The piece goes on to look more deeply about, I guess, what sort of architects and urban planners are sort of thinking of. But I guess it's kind of, yeah, a little bit dark in terms of, I don't know, I think so often everybody's so absorbed in their own bubbles and existence. And it's just sort of really interesting how people often don't look outside of that community. And so there'll be sort of this urgency that sort of artists need spaces and it has to be in the inner city and it has to be in a certain way. And of course, there's really valid arguments and concerns. But when you sort of think about space and place and all the needs on this huge, long scale, you know, it's beyond just artists needing inner city spaces. I feel like urban environments are such a core part of your uh, practice and, and what you're often speaking about as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how you've come to that? And uh, yeah, I guess also specifically thinking about a future focused kind of urban conversation. I think when you think about the future of cities, like part of you just thinks post-apocalyptic chaos. Like it's sometimes it's really hard to think of the future of cities being really fantastic places. And you sort of want to think that we are starting to address these issues and concerns, but it also just feels like so much is happening so rapidly. I think everybody is so unbelievably aware of climate change. Like it's sort of in your body and your mind, but I kind of feel like we don't really know what to do there's really powerful black writing at the moment and about these issues. But sometimes I'm just kind of like, what do we do as people and communities? So we sort of talk about storytelling and you have this storytelling practice as well as uh, urban planning practice. So if we think of uh, a national psyche, for example, and the ways in which we tell or don't tell particular stories, um, how do you think that can be impacted by the ways in which we you know, shape space and the stories that therefore get told through that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, stories have such an impact on how we think about who we are and how we think about the future. So obviously, I mean, I think 
the way particularly Aboriginal writers and artists have been making such an impact in the past 10 years in particular. I think in a way you would argue that their work is probably largely to do with why there's suddenly this almost huge, well, not huge enough, but kind of black architecture and black design scene. Like, obviously, there were definitely pockets of Aboriginal people working in architecture and urban planning almost in isolation. But I do feel the role that black artists and writers have played in terms of yeah, really having this huge impact in creating work that has crossed over into all sorts of, I guess, for want of a better word, mainstream audiences. And I think it sort of means that people, architecture firms, local councils, other tiers of government are becoming more interested. And I think there's a direct link between storytelling and the role that storytelling has played yeah in terms of the kind of like everyday nuts and bolts of practice I think often people tend to sort of favor that more quantifiable evidence-based almost statistical approach to decision making but I think sort of more holistically storytelling is huge in terms of how we think and shape cities. And even just what comes to my mind is Boy. It's an arts festival. It's about, yeah, visual arts, music, performance, but it radically reshapes Melbourne and the CBD. So what is the story that you want to tell of or for the future? Or do you know what that is yet? I think, I yeah, I want to be really optimistic. I mean, my big thing is, yeah, interdisciplinary practice. I think I mentioned at the start, you know, artists being quite siloed and being like, we're the most important, we need this and this and that. Technical scientists, academics, architects, urban planners, everyone sort of seems to be in their silo and thinking, I'm going to save the world from climate change or whatever. I think, yeah, I mean, obviously, ideally, we'll get through climate catastrophe, really address Aboriginal sovereignty, we'll do everything. I want to be optimistic, but I feel like something has to change in terms of everybody being in their weird little cliques and worlds and not speaking to each other and kind of understanding that. Yeah, almost like reducing the ego. It's like if you're a scientist and you think you're so important, well, you know, it couldn't do, it could be really great to sort of think about working with other people because these issues are so huge and almost hard to comprehend I don't think we can really solve them if we're just working in our own little isolated worlds thinking that we're the most important. I'm a huge fan of multidisciplinary (laughs) approaches. Um, Thanks so much for joining us Tima. We've just got one final question for you which is uh, for any emerging practitioners that are listening to you now do you have any advice? Oh just do what you want to do, essentially. And also, yeah, be um, multifaceted. Like, do, I think, different things is really exciting and not kind of feel that you have to do something a certain way. And definitely for writers, come along to EWF events because that was really vital for me. So it's called Remnants of a Food Court, Docklands 2034, An Experiment in Place Activation. 
It was generally understood that artists required large, vacuous spaces to develop work. Abandoned warehouses, empty buildings and post-disaster sites like Fukushima were ideal enclaves. A deserted food court on the edges of Melbourne's floundering suburb, the Docklands, was an opportunity to push what was possible, distorting the boundaries between creative practice and personal existence. Still equipped with plastic seating and bay marines once full of hot chips, dim sims and sushi, the area was reimagined as affordable housing and studio for artists. Hopeful bodies filled the space in exorbitant numbers that both thrilled and alarmed organisers who were reluctant to turn people away. At the official launch, a young woman acknowledged that they stood on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nations, while people erected makeshift bedrooms from the former takeaway outlets. She possessed the type of verve which would see her gradually emerge as the artistic director, outlining a vision for the future where they crossed new terrain. She stated, In an era that feels more fractured than ever, this new way of living and practising captures the unsettled atmosphere of our times, full of frenzied conversation, interrogation and work that will never feel resolved. We will play with our deepest creative desires in ways that are frightening and lighthearted. With important moments to pause, relieving the intensity with curated dance parties. As artists continued to flow through excessively, elated by the possibility of a place to live and work at a subsidised fee, it was becoming evident that there was insufficient space to accommodate the eager bodies. Amidst the sense of confusion which cut through, a tall, thin woman with sharp eyes stood in the corner calmly. It was unclear whether she was disturbed or humoured by the large fight which broke out between a group of young artists vying for a small area which used to be Nando's. We were interested in what visions of the future the EWF family has. And so we asked, can you tell me about the future? What does it look like there? These are the responses we received. I want to talk about the future specifically as a queer person. So I'd like to quote from Anne Carson's book, If Not Winter, in which she translates fragments of Sappho's verse. Her translation of fragment 147 goes, someone will remember us, I say, even in another time. It's so short and yet I think about it all the time. It's a fragment that makes me think about sapphic love in the past. Because I think of Sappho writing that lyric and looking up at the stars and how now, thousands of years later, we have not erased her identity and we have remembered her as a queer poet. And so for me, when I think about the future, I consider her memory the most. And so what I'm saying is that I would also like to be remembered that way as a queer person who looked up at the stars and wrote poems that assert that queerness and queer love are worth remembering. As a young creative living in these times, the future is really a mix of hope and fear. 
I often wonder if art and letters and essentially storytelling are enough um, in a climate that is increasingly mindless, fractured, that is heavily politicised, bigoted, um, where injustice seems to be legitimised as a power um, that sets communities apart and misuses resources. Ultimately, I think art can not only generate dialogue, but operate on the level of humanity by capturing the sediments of darkness and act as a language for transformation, uh, for rebuilding, for mending the past and creating better conditions for people. I'm not interested in art as an elitist tool to perpetuate the status quo. To be honest, that's the way it operates and there is probably no value in that. I actually think that art belongs to us. And when I say us, it belongs to everyone that taps into it. Um, it's almost like an energy, like a life force. And at its most powerful, it's a tool that uses language to rescue memory from absence, to bear witness to what has been done, to reclaim space, and above all, to love, love, love. In the past, being asked to contemplate the future would have made me really anxious. Its infinite possibility and unknowability would have just completely overwhelmed me. Now I approach it with curiosity. So what changed? Just accepting that all we have is the present. I can't control what tomorrow will bring, but I can do my best today and hope that it makes a difference. I had a dream that the sky was on fire. I was in love. There were dolphins in the water. We had to put on special psychedelic glasses because it was the future and our eyes couldn't see them naturally. The glasses made the water purple and pink and shiny. The dolphins were playing but their teeth were crooked, like mine used to be. I was in love, and the sky was on fire. In the future, I see love in the time of the planet's death, and I see us moving on together. I see our visions transplanted into new, imaginary, mechanical bodies. I see space travel, time travel, New languages, new stories, new animals, new designs, new ways to love. I see a new world. I'm honestly really not sure what the future looks like. I find the future a fairly terrifying concept to think about a lot of the time. I think there's some things that I'm really worried about and a lot of those are big picture problems which as an individual I'm not sure how much of an impact I can have on changing the direction that things are going but for me personally I think at the moment and in terms of my career and the art I'm creating and the things that I want to do in a creative sense I think the future looks really bright and I'm looking forward to seeing where I can take 
a career that is focused on my own creativity and exploring that and what that means for me and helping other people explore that too. So I hope that I get to do more of that in the future. I hope that I'm able to share this um, passion that I have for creativity and hopefully influence other people to explore their own creativity a little bit as well. And that's really what I'm hoping for in the future. I hope the future might be a place where we're kinder to one another, to ourselves, and kinder to our planet. Thanks to Darlene Silva Soberano, Latifa Elmrini, Lauren Sanders, Manisha Anjali, and Tamsin West for your future visions. See Tima on a panel on black editing as part of the Emerging Editors Masterclass on Friday, the 21st of June. Hear the future in 2222, an immersive audio installation at the State Library of Victoria, inviting audiences to pop on headphones and listen to speculative futures about the library in the year 2222. Consider the future of labour, truth and storytelling at the National Writers' Conference. Delve into the unique and political possibilities of speculative fiction from the perspective of black writers and audiences at Lunchtime Lit Black Speculative Futures. Explore artists' responses to the exhibition theme Future Truths, including our collaboration with the Australian multilingual writing project The Future of Language, and creative and critical responses to the exhibition works presented in collaboration with Inhabit Journal. See the full Emerging Writers Festival program and book tickets online at emergingwritersfestival.org.au. Full artist bios for this episode are available on the website and in the show notes on SoundCloud. Our theme music for the podcast is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. You can check them out on Facebook at Huntley Music and listen to their recently released debut album Low Grade Buzz wherever you normally find your music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands that this podcast reaches.